You're listening to The Real Witches of the End Times, transmissions straight from the underworld. Doom witches, blood wizards, underworld accountants, and cloud people. Welcome back to the Real Witches of the End Times podcast. I'm your host, Mana Aylin. Today I'm excited because Mortellus is back. Mortellus is publishing their second book, The Bones Fall in a Spiral. And I am just so happy to have you here. I had the honor of looking over a draft for this book, and it's incredible. So thank you. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. It's a pleasure to be back of course i had a blast last time i think i've said more than once that it's it's so rare that you sit down to chat with a total stranger and you're like oh my god we're best friends now <laughs> and i definitely felt that way last time so i'm glad to be back and chatting it out yeah i that episode that interview which if you haven't heard it i will link it in the description box below is the only podcast episode i've recorded where i've cried on so congratulations uh (laughs) maybe (laughs) not sure well you shared a piece of your writing from your first book which is called do i have to wear black and it just really sunk with me and just the whole experience and the fact that you were willing to share that before you even published the book it meant a lot and your writing is very research-based and at the same time is extremely atmospheric, which is something that I wanted to say as I was reading your draft for The Bones Fall in the Spiral. It's, you can tell it's, there's, it's written by someone who has been putting so much time and their own experiences in, but it's written in a way that's not like a research paper. And it's also not written like it's someone's run on sentence (laughs) and it really sets a mood. And there's so many, like I'm a very visual person and I, make connections to shapes and colors when I read things, when I hear music, and when I interact with people. It's something that I've had most of my life, but I really got that even with the first draft of your book. So I just wanted to share that. Well, thanks. I think I think that's what my publisher calls approachable writing, but I never know what that means, really. It's funny, like, I, I, I try and write what's what's in my heart and my soul and what I really want to share with people. I never sit down and go, this is a topic people are interested in and I would like to sell or whatever. Let's not, I, I just want to write about things I care about and what I'm doing in my actual life. I think I say that in the book you just read. It's like, you know, if we're not willing to step out on a limb and share our weird UPG, like, are we saying anything new ever? Or is it all just like, a bunch of people rehashing the same college essay over and over, which is kind of not interesting to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I try and say that stuff. And and that's really vulnerable sometimes because someone's always going to send you a message and be like, that thing that you said was your extremely personal UPG and did in no way try to tell us was factual from a place. That's stupid. And you are stupid for saying it. <laughs> it's always going to happen. Right. But, but I try and do it anyway so that that one other person that goes, oh, yeah, me too. Like, it, that's important, I think. Did I just actually make a point? I don't know. You did. I think <laughs> you did. I, I mean, you're, you're getting at the what something that I actually had written down that I wanted to bring up is you challenge a lot of the ideas that I think people and not even just one community because people kind of, you know, lump spiritual communities together. But 
even just the concept of a ghost from the get-go you're like actually i'm gonna reframework this for this entire book <laughs> and i needed to ask you how do you pronounce this word it's e-i-d-o-l-o-n it's eidolon eidolon will be very familiar to anyone who played D 3.5 because it is a feature of the alchemist class or <laughs> anyone who played final fantasy because eidolons are monsters you can fight but uh, my nerdy ass loves Eidolon because I think it's really specific in a way that ghost is not. Like, if you say ghost, a person probably thinks you mean like a wispy and corporeal dead human being, right? But it doesn't actually really specifically mean anything other than an apparition, which can be a lot of stuff. And I work a lot with um deceased animals and i work a lot with incorporeal manifestations of living people so eidolon is specific kind of in that way where it's like i'm not talking about a manifestation of just any incorporeal thing i'm talking about living and dead humans and animals so that word really works for me yeah, I found that it made a lot more sense as I was reading, especially as you were talking about like the, the components of a soul and in addition to like the different types of dead that you, you may encounter, it, it seemed more comprehensive in general to all of those different things that you were defining. And it really made me feel as though I had more terms to use to describe phenomena or things that I've experienced that I hadn't before. And it was like someone was showing me that no, it's like, it's okay to, to talk about all of these things differently. And we don't have to lump them all in and continue to do like a, a script around it. Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about there. Like, like we talk all the time in today's really fucked up, awful world about disassociating, right? It's like, do you really rest at the end of the day or do you just disassociate real hard at your social media for a while? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> But where are you going when you disassociate? Because you're definitely letting part of you go just so they can be safe and okay, right? That's an interesting question that we're not really talking about. It's like, are you giving part of your mind, your body, and your soul just a little vacation from being attached to you for a bit? Where do they go? What are they doing? What is, What does that mean for us as individuals just on an existential level? Which don't take any of that to mean mental health stuff is all witchcraft things. It isn't. Go get goddamn therapy and take medication because the woods will not fix your depression. But <laughs> these are still interesting questions to talk about think about yeah i found the particularly the parts of a soul that you spoke about interesting because you spoke about them as though you could if some people if they're experiencing apparitions and there's studies that have shown that there's something go, there's what was it it was like a specific point oh man i am butchering this it's Something was happening in the brain that was causing the person to actually see themselves as the apparition. Yes. Um, these sort of remote manifestations of the self. Basically, what this study tried to do was recreate ghost phenomena, create a situation where, um, look at me butchering it, and I wrote it. <laughs> Anyway, a bunch of researchers were like, I got scared of a ghost one time and that was definitely not real. So I'm going to figure out how it wasn't real. <laughs> so they tried to set up a situation in which a person would have that kind of experience. So it was kind of like, what if we put our test subject alone in a dark room and made him read creepypasta or something? I don't know. <laughs> 
And ultimately, they discovered that there was sort of this disconnect between the mind and the body when people are having certain experiences, where sometimes what they're seeing is literally themselves. They, they lose this certain kind of connection to their body and mind, which I don't think that makes ghost phenomena less real or interesting. In fact, I think it makes it far, far more interesting to imagine mm. that, yes, this could be part of you that's haunting you. And what do they need to say? <laughs> what is their fucking purpose? Let's talk about that. There was a specific part of the the parts of the soul that you were speaking about that was the umbra mm -hmm. that really, I feel like, eloquently put this concept of the shadow of, your, of yourself that people really wrestle with with pop culture spiritual speaking because it kind of gets lumped into this like whole shadow work thing and then yes. it gets conflated with the Carl Jungian idea of the shadow and the way that you explained it it was really concise and really clear of like this is something that like exists like to protect you and all of these things end up in that space but it doesn't ma necessarily make it a kind being either it can have the potential for harm right like so I, I talk about this a little bit, like my, my particular working framework for the soul is very founded in Kematism, uh, ancient Egyptian beliefs of the soul. And of course they, they have their own names and structure. And I, I talk a bit about how, you know, when we're dealing with UPG, we're kind of taking a homebrew approach to our magic. I've, I'm always tangling games up with my magic. That's so dorky, but me too. here we are. <laughs> For anyone listening who isn't aware, homebrew is a way of playing a tabletop RPG where it's like, I'm going to use the set of rules from this Dungeon and Dragon book or this Pathfinder book or this Scion book or whatever. But I'm going to build my own world and my own characters and stuff. I'm not going to use... I'm going to play a Lord of the Rings game with the Lord of the Rings rules, but we're not going to be in Middle-earth. We're going to be in our own place or whatever. When we are being eclectic or we're doing what people call chaos magic or whatever, you're doing the same thing. You're taking a set of rules, but pulling things into it that mean something to you. So you might put new names or ideas to those frameworks, making them your own, but you know where they came from. I know this framework of the soul is comedic, but I've homebrewed it. I use my own words to describe it. I use my own names. I think using the word shadow is confusing for people, which is why I use umbra, which functionally means the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I could call it the shut, which is the uh, ancient Egyptian word. But I do find that, I don't know, that's a little alienating for people, I think. So I tried to use language for myself in my own practice that helped me connect better with the expressions. So I tried to share that with others here. And you're right. I do think shadow gets sort of conflated with that Jungian shadow work kind of, kind of thing. So I was really trying to draw a, a boundary between that and this. It was just something that I, in my own personal books that I've read, I've never really seen it like categorized out for me like that in a way that that made so much sense. And I was then really open to this idea of the experiences that I'm having more so could could be parts of myself. And it doesn't and it didn't take away like any of the enchantment of that either right. or like right. the intrigue. 
it made it more interesting. It's like spicy psychology that we're doing. (laughs) 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 No, I really do think that when you you take the time, I think I talk about this in the book, but when you take the time for rationality and logic and skepticism, it doesn't ruin magic for you. It just makes magic so much more powerful when you're able to go, okay, I know what that thing is, but I don't know what that was. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that part of that experience, that's where the, the woo was, right? Like, And you you can kind of see my my ADHD brain reading that book. When I, said, <laughs> when I sat down to write that book, I was like, Anything you can find about necromancy right now is either A, extremely academic, or B, uh, forgive me, written by a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) None of those books are really practice-oriented either. The modern stuff is filled with dangerous concepts or heteronormative bullshit or, like, Mm -hmm. cites Nazis. You would think that it would not be that hard to just not cite Nazis, but apparently it's issue for people so i just wanted to write about my practice in a way that people could use and then i went wait though there's not this other thing that people need foundationally like i think the best thing about that book is the bibliography like even if you don't give a shit about what i wrote like you have this concise bibliography poor llewellyn was like could you please not put all that stuff in there please pretty please (laughs) I love that you did. I mean, I, I maybe part of the reason why I really enjoy your writing so much is because you write like I, I can tell that you've gone to school a lot and I'm used to to that type of writing of like I and I'm also a quote fiend. I collect quotes. Me too. My all my books are full of highlighter and sticky tabs of quotes that I liked and I don't know what to do with. My poor iPhone. I just have like a notepad full of them. <laughs> Well, you have them all over the place and then you quote them as evidence pieces. And I just like really enjoyed that on a personal level. I think no matter what topic you're writing on, I I would enjoy that part of it. (laughs) But the fact that you had that ginormous bibliography when I saw it, I was like, yes, because so many times, and I think, you know, sometimes people will have a book and they'll be really clear, like this is UPG. So I'm not really going to have a ton of sources listed out, but they'll be clear about it. But, but you have that combination and you're like, here are all these sources uh, just the ones that I can really remember that I, I added in. And I prefer to see that because there's so much more to go off of. There's books that you've cited. I think there was one, it was about, um, oh man, I wish, I wish I'd highlighted it down. It was a book that I think was about writing villains. It was like yes. how to be a villain. Yes. And that wasn't even like an occult book. Oh, it's, it's such a funny book though. I love that book. Yeah. I think you, you talked about how, necromancers are depicted in all sorts of pop culture mm-hmm. i uh that, that book is called how to be a villain by neil zawaki by the way and it's it's totally funny it's one of those like coffee table books you give your friends as a joke or whatever and um i found it because i was re- <laughs> i was researching necromancy while i wasn't sleeping in the middle of the night by searching words on google books because i'm a human being people okay <laughs> what comes up i'm curious so i find it and i find this little tirade they do about you know like being a necromancer is the perfect villain career (laughs) it's like this is a perfect example of what people think about death magic (laughs) but i just also sort of fell in love with this dorky little book so i saw that in there and then i saw the sandman quote from the doll's house which is book two of the of the comics and i was like oh my gosh we have so much in common 
This is exciting. I'm a big nerd. Um. That's the truth. <laughs> I think I'm probably the only bibliography you'll ever find with a disclaimer at the top. I saw that. <laughs> but a lot of this stuff is assholes. I don't cosign, okay? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's, you run into this thing where it's like, it would be totally unreasonable not to cite this thing. And also, it's like, to be able to talk about the problems, you have to cite the problems. <laughs> so do I want people to know, it's like, some of this stuff is really shitty. So please don't think that because it's in this bibliography that it's like a great and awesome thing for you to go check out. Do read it. You'll find great stuff in bad books and bad stuff in great books. But, you know, grain of salt and all that. So <laughs> But yeah, I think the the whole book is kind of an interesting uh, picture into my head because when I when I sat down just to write about what I'm doing in my own space, it's like, oh, actually people need more of they need more background and framework that isn't just this dense academic stuff or like some weirdo writing in a Halloween font about, <laughs> you know, hot takes about women or something and <laughs> I have to give all that stuff. And then it's like, wait, I can't talk about that unless I like talk about the soul and what does that mean? And what is the meaning of life? And where does it all come from? Oh my God. (laughs) How much did you have to edit out? A bunch, like (laughs) 30,000 words. It's like a lot. I could write a second book. (laughs) Literally. I remember you saying that for the first one too. (laughs) I literally told Llewellyn that I was like, I would like to write a part two to this book. That's just a spell book because there's that much more material. Mm -hmm. You can see it's puns. My, my book of shades. I thought that was clever y'all. I'm not sure if this, the book will stay organized the exact same way when it's published later this year, but the draft that I read you, I really enjoyed the way it was organized. You had all of the essentially like the background information and then you had specific notes and symbols explaining that this is where you can go later on in the book of shades mm-hmm. uh, for like a corresponding ritual or spell or how to make a specific tool or, or item. And I really like that because I sometimes find when books are mixed together, like they'll put something right afterwards. It's harder for me to go back and find what I'm looking for. I am so glad you said that because I have that same problem when I'm reading a book. And that was the first complaint Luella made when I turned in the draft. My poor editor can't probably can't stand me, which is hearts. Sorry. Sorry about it. But um, they were like, you, you can't do that. People don't want to be referred to somewhere else in the book. Like you have to rearrange the book so that everything is in the order that it appears. Like the first thing you're referencing should be the first thing in the book. And I was like, that sounds crazy to me. I cannot, I cannot do that. <laughs> so I came up with the, the little icon system, like, like one of those for dummies books so that, so that I could get around that problem. <laughs> Yeah, I like it because the way that it, it kind of reminded me of a textbook, but not, and I don't mean that in like a... It's a compliment. Um, you, you enjoy school. Yeah, like, okay, I mean it as a compliment. I know some people feel like, oh, a dry textbook. I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, it's functional. I feel like I can progress with it. Yeah, I get I get what you're saying. I totally take that as a compliment, 100%. <laughs> I wanted to, to touch on this too, because we were talking about D&D a little bit. Um, you, you incorporate d10 and d20 dies into mm-hmm. some of your activities for us in there i did 
I, I love reminding people that we've been using iosahedron for thousands and thousands of years, and at all points in time, they have been simultaneously for gaming and magic. We should reclaim that. <laughs> bring it back, y'all. Let's bring it back. The name of the book I really, really fought for. Authors don't get to title their books. We don't get to do our art. We, a lot of stuff. It's like a whole thing, which is hard for me because I'm also an artist. And I did get to do a lot of illustrations for the Bones Fall, but not all of them, which bums me out as yet. But here we are. But uh, I super fought for that title. It was really important to me. I, I reached out to Paizo, the creators of Pathfinder role-playing game, and got permission to rework that ritual into the book. Uh, I gave them my whole spiel about how, you know, we need to stop pretending like pagan communities and gaming communities are hurting hurting each other somehow, right? Like, satanic panic is well behind us. We can stop. Mm. <laughs> so I got their permission. And uh, in, in the Pathfinder role-playing game, in that universe, there's a death deity called Phrasma. Mm -hmm. And Phrasma has a holy text in, in the setting of the game. And that book is called The Bones Land in a Spiral. Um, so I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this deep cut Easter egg like right on the cover. Doing it. <laughs> I think by now they think I've established a pattern of having like weirdly named books. So maybe in the future it'll be like, oh, you want to, that book title's an entire pun. All right. <laughs> I knew that you didn't, most authors didn't get a say in the cover illustration, but I didn't know that the title was also part of that. Yep. You can, um, at least with Llewellyn, the author is asked for five title suggestions and five subtitle suggestions, um, all of which may be rejected. Um, when I, <laughs> when I turn this book in, my five suggestions, if I can recall correctly, were... Uh, one, the bones fall in a spiral. Two, the bones land in a spiral. Three, the bones arrange themselves in a somewhat circular pattern. Four, I think you get my point. Five, <laughs> my <online books. laughs> uh, this is what I wanted to be. Do it or I will cry. <laughs> and the cover art for this book is actually based on a piece of my art, which has kind of been a whole thing. Anybody that's been on my Instagram has seen this back and forth, but... Um, Llewellyn, uh, used a piece of my art, but changed it for the cover, uh, which I was pretty grumpy about. So I have just aggressively only posted the actual art <laughs> that I made for the cover, um, which is the dumbest hill for me to choose to die on, but here we are. It's so hard for me to, to understand. I guess it's like, I don't know, a marketing thing with publishers, maybe. I don't know, but I, it, people create these books it's like they're children in a way mm -hmm. and then they want to title them the way that they want it's such an important piece mm -hmm. so i'm glad that you got your title yeah that was really important i would have been i would have been uh inconsolable <laughs> if i hadn't mm -hmm. been able to do that so i'll I'll, uh, I'll take it and be happy so i realize that we've been talking about this and i don't even think we've kind of given an introduction to the book what it it is in essence it's a book about necromancy uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of it's the follow-up to the book that that you wrote that came out early in 2021 which is do i have to wear black which is about pagan funerary rites 
but this one is more of a follow-up of like practical necromancy and like what that actually is and Mm -hmm. your experience with it i just wanted to say that because i feel like i don't think we said that earlier (laughs) at all (laughs) no (laughs) i wanted to write about my practice i wanted to dispel some of the stereotypes and give people an idea of what that magic really is when you get past all of the leftover catholic nonsense sort of gestured at (laughs) vaguely and uh yeah, I'm really excited about it. I don't think it's just, though, for people who want to practice necromancy. I think it's a great book for anyone who does paranormal investigation, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's a great book for anyone who is like, my house is haunted, could I hire someone to do a house clearing? Hot take, I think you probably shouldn't do that ever, but I think it's a great book for someone who wants to have an ancestor practice, which hot take is also necromancy. (laughs) I think it's a great practice, a great book for anyone who does any kind of magic that is Wicca adjacent, because I think it's a real counterpoint to what that magic is perceived as. I mean, if you read the, the chapter on the necromantic ritual and kind of what what that means to me and what that looks like i really do think it's it's the balance to what we tend to classify as fertility traditions blah 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 i don't think of them like that i i sort of classify you know life and death i don't i don't deal with that whole like fertility goddess god whatever stuff but life and death creation destruction that's that's the only that's the only binary I need in my life. So, yeah, so many deities over time have been kind of reduced to like fertility deities too. Yes, I I didn't say it in the book because once again, my poor editor. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I at one point said that the horn god is the lord of death and resurrection. He's god of the underworld, and we have reduced him to a boner, which is deeply uncool. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you've said it here. Here we are. <laughs> so many hot takes, my God. One of the things that I really enjoyed towards the beginning is you had a, a manifesto is not the right word, but it had, <laughs> I don't know what, what, else, what else to say in the moment. Of it's not, it's not necessarily, you do have some disclaimers in there, but you, you state your case and where you're coming from and you're, and you basically say like, there's no room for bigotry here. Necromancy is for everyone. Everybody dies. Also, you're not willing to debate. The quote I have is, we'll not debate whether necromancy is light or dark. Death simply is. Right. Exactly. It's neutral. It's for everyone. It just is. I don't know how else to put it. It, just, it seems really silly to me to think of anything really as evil or dark or malefic or malign i think these are all words we use because we're still afraid of things and we just don't need it i think that that sort of neutrality is overlooked and i talk about that at a point where it's like this whole right hand left hand thing is absurd and it's like i really sat with that for a long time like why do we have this perception what is that really and i've my tech is often don't research anything about that <laughs> just think about it a bunch and see what happens see what rattles out of your face if you, <laughs> if you just sit with it a bunch and i i found myself thinking about doing autopsies which 
you'd be surprised at the amount of just like magical revelations I've had just working with the human body. That's, that's a whole thing. But we talk about right hand magic, like that's good and wonderful and whatever. And left hand magic is bad. When we're talking about the human body, the right hand is connected to a, a piece of arterial return or venous return rather that carries just like disgusting toxic deoxygenated blood around the circulatory pond of your body right and i was sort of thinking about why is this good why is this the good hand the good side of your body it's like what makes that good and we're talking about we go clockwise around a circle and we you know we are doing life and we're going east to east in a clockwise direction, we're holding that part of our body to the altar, we are moving like a clock, right? Like we're always advancing life forward, which means good magic or or fertility magic or life aligned magic or whatever word you want to call it with like your mother goddess, whatever, 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 is always about dying. It's always about decay. <laughs> You're always sort of advancing forward, right? The day will end and you will die and, you know, be reincarnated or whatever your practice entails. I believe everything is real. I believe in string theory. And I think whatever contract you signed is what you get. So we don't really need to debate what I think happens. <laughs> it's not relevant. Mm -hmm. So what makes the left hand bad and sitting with that? It's like, this is where you're descending aorta flows, right? directly down to that so-called heart vein that runs through your ring finger. Even ancient Egyptians sort of associated that with life in some measure, even if they had the biology of it a little wrong. The idea that this is the part of your body that is what provides you life, that sort of stuck with me. Like, what makes that evil? And it's, it's like... With every beat of your heart, it's resurrecting you from death. You are always one heartbeat away from death. Every single time. Every moment. But your heart reanimates that disgusting blood and puts it back into your body. New and alive. So left hand magic is always about turning things around. Turning a clock backwards. Reversing things going counterclockwise, moving against nature, perhaps, but it's always about living and being alive. It's always about birth and appreciating what we have for this glorious, stupid moment that we have it. It really is about embracing life. And I'm sure we can all see how some could make the argument that that's what makes it evil, that it's about reversals. It is about turning counter to nature, but I don't believe you can have one without the other. Without that balance, you can't live. That's going to stick with me, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think about that all the time. And if you look back at kind of, I mean, really look hard at where we get a lot of ideas about magic. We're looking at like, what, like 15th century grimoires and the dusty old white Catholics writing that stuff, right? And when we look at those ideas, I'm being wildly reductive. Someone just went, what? I'm sending an email right now. That's <laughs> Say, 
I'm just being broad, okay, people. But it's easy to see the stereotypes built into that idea. So when you have people who've already been kind of uh, brainwashed or tormented into this idea that the Christian way is right at a time when you could literally fucking be murdered for disagreeing, you can kind of see how the idea of moving against what is perceived as Christian and good is seen as evil, even though we've largely rejected all of the foundational ideas about witchcraft and magic and alchemy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, well, obviously these are stereotypes and we're, we're doing things that might be indigenous practices or, or might be who the fuck cares if we made them up, they're important to us and you've got your thing, whatever. But we still sort of draw the line at death magic as though it's it's like this last bastion of taboo even within magical communities where we forget that holding those keys of life and death were always part of our magic they were always important to us they were just taken from us and i'm not talking about you know, we're the grandchildren of the witches you didn't burn bullshit we're, we're not doing that what i'm talking about is these, these ideas are taken from us by hundreds of years of systemic oppression and colonization and just rewiring of societal ideals until we no longer own our own deaths, our own connection to living and dying. And we need to take that back. One of the points that you make in the book is how People act like it's weird to practice necromancy when in reality it seems weirder that we don't. Mm -hmm. That was a point made by uh, the much more intelligent than me, Daniel Ogden, from uh, Greek and Roman Necromancy. Uh, it's a book I'm very fond of, but it is it is dense in academics, not really practice-oriented. Um, but he sort of talks about how that's such an important part of any culture throughout history. And it's really only now today that it's a weird thing, which is sort of archeologically speaking, this is a nap fart of a moment in history. Like <laughs> historically I have older leftovers than the idea that necromancy is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so why aren't we doing that anymore? And that is definitely a question worth asking yourself. Like, even if it's not a practice for you, like any person listening, if you're like, yeah, this is neat, but it's not for me, it's still worth reading and taking the time to think about why it isn't for you. Like, that's a good question to ask yourself. Why isn't this something I feel comfortable with? And really break down that answer. Is it truly something you're choosing or a discomfort that's sort of baked into you your whole life by the society you live in? Right? Mm -hmm. Good stuff to ask uncomfortable answers abound <laughs> i also like the point that you made when you're talking obviously we're speaking a lot about cemeteries in this book right they come up quite a bit you brought up how they're not necessarily full of the dead all of the time and more so the graves are like these you imagine them as like little tube stations that people can pop in and out of as opposed to just like being bound to the place like in the bank drive through you just <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> think of it like a train station where the dead can come and go and it living if clever can come and go 
It's so funny. Like, I know you've had this experience. Surely we're too much alike for you not to have. But have you ever been reading fiction or something? And you're like, oh, my God, this thing you wrote is literally the thing I thought like forever. That's me. Literally yesterday, I was finishing reading a book and I and I <laughs> I so I finished reading this book and I was like, the way that this author is talking about the shadow is just the umbra from mm -hmm. what Mortella spoke about. <laughs> and they literally feed the their umbra three drops of blood. Every oh my day gosh. From their finger. What were you reading? <laughs> uh, this, this was called Book of Night by Holly Black. Oh, well, now I have to go read that because <laughs> it is beautiful writing. Uh, two, it is just you will be like, I know all these concepts. Book these are real. Night by Holly. What was the name? Holly Black. I love stuff like that because it's like, oh my God, I know the research you did. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I know what you were reading, which I love. But uh, partway through writing this manuscript, I, I was reading a novel. I try once in a while to just break it up and read a novel because otherwise I get way too in my own head and everything Same. gets weird for me. But um, I was reading Lost Gods by Brahm. I cite it in the book, actually, and I totally suggest people please go read this book. But Brahm is one of my favorite authors. He writes stuff that will make you so fucking uncomfortable <laughs> he's in the best way. And he's this amazing painter illustrator. And the book has this like centerfold of several pages of just full color illustrations or paintings. And it's so worth it. If you can find a copy, it's out of print, but you can still find used ones pretty easily on like Amazon and stuff. But, um, the story sort of centers around someone who their spouse is killed and they descend into the underworld to find them. That's not spoilers. You kind of know that almost immediately, but here we are. The pregnant lady doesn't make it immediately. You know this on the cover of the book, so. <laughs> but in descending into the underworld, so we have this living person descending into the underworld and they're sort of learning how to transactionally interact with that space. Like, how do I get there? And how do I move within this world? And what do the dead want for me? Or what do they think of me? And, and there's this huge mythology around it, which is amazing and weird. And uh, there's so many, so many concepts in there that are like, oh my God, yes. And he talks about uh, cemeteries kind of in a similar way in this book as these sort of way stations. But he talks about the character looking up and seeing their bones as a way to return to the living. And that was so weird for me to read because it was kind of my experience when I died. Um, when I returned to my body, I remember being able to look up and see my bones and it, there was something about that that just pulled me to them. And I use it in a pathworking in the book. It's like, you know, when you're done with this pathworking in the underworld, if, you, if you're uncomfortable or you don't want to be there anymore, just, just look up and find your body. You'll see it like a star and just pull yourself to it. So seeing it in this novel was just wild to me, just the wildest thing in the world. That's fascinating because you also hear stories where people when they go up too far and they look down and see their body in the bed <laughs> right. too. Right. Um, someone else who had read an early draft pointed that out to me. I wasn't familiar with that concept at all, but <laughs> really, yeah, I wow. had never heard that before. I guess it happens to some people in dreams. I really truly try not to interact a bunch with the thing I'm writing about or thinking about 
until I have formed my own idea. That may be super weird of me, but it's like, I'm going to sit down and write a spell about blah. I'm not going to read fuck all about any of those topics until I decide how I feel about that thing. And I'll write a bunch of wacky bullshit and then I'll go research whatever the thing is. And then it's really interesting to me when I go, oh, that thing that I sort of intuited, I see how that might connect to this other thing that I found in research, which that's just fun for me, I guess. Some of the more memorable things from my own practice have come to me like that as well, mm-hmm. where you don't really pull them from somewhere. They just kind of find you and then you find weird pieces of it later everywhere else. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I don't know, that made me think of the spell in the book, which you got an older draft of. It's changed like slightly, but there's a spell in the book for basically summoning me, which <laughs> Llewellyn in their notes on the draft were like, just take that out. <laughs> there was no comment, just like remove this. That was the whole thing. <laughs> But uh, I, I wrote back almost like, but why? Like, that's really important to me. I want to leave it in. And they were like, we just, it, I don't know, it gives us the creeps. We, <laughs> we think the idea of giving total strangers that much power over you is bizarre and dangerous and whatever. And we're worried for you. <laughs> and I was like, one, I've chosen a life and death of service. I hope I can be there to assist people even when I'm gone. And two... I'm the only person that can consent and I'm doing it. <laughs> and lastly, if a person wanted to use a spell like that to try and do me harm, they need to remember I would not be trapped in a circle with them. They'd be trapped in one with me. Why would you do that? That would be stupid. <laughs> Why would you try that? So, uh, you were talking about like finding things later that connected back. It's like, I think we live in an age right now where a lot of dialogue in occult communities and witchcraft communities, etc., are like, yeah, but you could do this thing really simply. Here's like, write somebody's name on toilet paper and then like use it when you go to the bathroom and flush <laughs> them or whatever. Like that's a spell. That's one of Patty Wigington's spells. And I love it. It's, it cuts right to the fucking chase, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know how you really feel, but I think, too, we've lost a little bit of the poetry of, like, a really complex spell, which Mm -hmm. you only see in sort of ceremonial magic or high magic occultism kind of stuff. And I found myself thinking about that one day. I was cooking, and I I was trying to take a shortcut around a recipe, and I got to thinking about that. We've all done that, right? The recipe says to do this, but I'm using this frozen thing. I don't know. I'll be goddamned if I'm making pie crust today. That's not happening. <laughs> so here I was thinking about, well, if, if that doesn't affect my, my quiche much, <laughs> why does it matter in magic? And I, I, I came to the idea, anybody listening, please debate me. Like, write me mad emails. I'm here for it. But I was thinking about how it's totally effective. It just makes your magic really broad, right? It's not very direct. I think what makes those really complex spells like you might see in a movie or a video game or something, um, I think what makes them useful is that their complexity makes them really specific. So when I sat down to write that spell, it, the question was not, how do I write a spell so that someone could summon a deceased person? That's easy. That's a very simple thing to do, relatively speaking. 
The question was, how do I write a spell so they can summon not only me, but a very specific piece of my soul? What does that look like? And then it, it gets like so complicated, like finding the spell components that speak to that part of you, like the weirdest telephone number, you know? Mm -hmm. And kind of digging into what that would be was interesting and weird and vulnerable, painful at moments. And then being like, I'm telling a story of, of something painful that happened to me in spell ingredients. That's what's happening here. And I'm giving that to strangers. What does that mean for me? And what does it feel like? And what is its usefulness in the world? And, and I kept coming back around to thinking that authors become books when they die. So many writers are nothing but ghosts in footnotes now. My book is full of ghosts because most of the people I'm citing are dead. All books are haunted in a measure because they're filled with words whispering to us from the underworld, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that one day I won't be alive to sit alongside that book. So that vulnerability is more a gift to that moment because I know that maybe for the one person that thinks I'm going to try that because I need that help. It'll be worth it to them, even if it feels uncomfortable to me today, you know? That's a really interesting way to look at it. You spoke a little bit in the book, too, about how you would D&D class yourself as a wizard, but most people would put you as a paladin. <laughs> right. Embarrassing, right? Nobody wants to be the paladin. <laughs> I, I think it's honorable to take that step and have that dedication towards service. Like you said, too, that your magic is... You don't do any magic to, to benefit the self. Is that the correct phrasing? Uh, more or less. I swore a geish to the Morrigan that I would do no self-beneficial magic. It reminded me a lot of like the warrior's code. Because that, that's a concept that I'm really familiar with. And then you spoke about a personal code too. And I think that really trickles down into what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's really important. And we don't talk about it a lot in community. We talk about ethics and morality here and there. But that's... People don't like to hear this, but ethics are really debatable, right? We can yes. argue about ethics. Like everyone comes from a different foundation. We hear in the funeral community all the time, the golden rule, like that's many funeral directors would have that on their office, like the order of the golden rule, blah, 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 this thing. Um, it's a community you can join the order of the golden rule. And I'm always debating with funeral people that the golden rule is actually really harmful do unto others as you would have them do unto you suggests that you believe in the same things and that you want the same things. What you do within the foundation of your belief to someone else may be harmful to them. So we have to not think about what we would want. We have to think about what the other person needs. So instead of debating ethical codes and morality, I think it's really important for each person in a magical community to sit down and write a personal code. I've written blog posts about it. It's homework I give my coven students. Um, it's something that I think is really, really worthwhile to think about. What, what are your personal boundaries? What is important to you? What do you need to uphold? 
then you know where you're coming from. De Morgan gave me my life back, whether I wanted it at the time or not. That was a big gift, and I swore that oath that I would never do magic for myself because I felt it would be a misuse of the life that I was given back. And geish are kind of a specific kind of magic, if you're unfamiliar or people listening are unfamiliar. They are a really powerful kind of oath, and when you break them, they have really huge consequences, like up to and including your death. But they often have benefits. I have found that the benefit of my oath is um, a very particular kind of connection with the dead, which is useful to me. But never doing magic for yourself is actually kind of hard. There are moments when you want to and you feel like you need that, but I've learned over the years that there is something really precious and vulnerable about relying on others for magic that you need. Magic can be... I feel like this might upset people. Magic can be selfish. Magic isn't always compatible with consent. We're not exactly always asking people if we can do magic for them, good, bad, or ugly. There's always a bad side to any good. There's always a counterpoint to anything we're doing. There's always more to the story. And I think we are naturally more inclined to believe that someone is doing something bad rather than doing something helpful. Um, there's a psychological concept called positive-negative asymmetry. If you want to read about that, it's really interesting. It, it means we're more likely to believe something harmful than something good. We're more likely to remember something bad than something good. You could have a good day and one bad thing happen, and when asked how your day was, you'll describe it as bad. I write about that a bit in the Llewellyn Compendium that's coming out in July. I submitted an essay on positive and negative magic, like, is one more powerful than the other? And I get way down the rabbit hole of why, why would we even believe something like that to begin with? Think to yourself, have you ever heard a person say, I think someone has cursed me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard someone say, in the same way, I don't know, I think someone, like, did a blessing for me or sent me a boon? No. Right. We are far more likely to believe that someone is hurting us than doing something kind. So by never doing magic for myself, it leaves me space to always be hopeful that someone out there somewhere is doing something good for me. And do you think that's really strengthened a lot of relationships that you've had, of learning which people you can go to for magic? Like, you're someone I would ask. If I, if I were sick, I might... You're a person I would text and say, would you light a candle for me? I'm not okay. Would I post the same statement on Twitter for strangers? I don't know. Probably not because I would feel like I was being greedy or something. But it's <laughs> just me being weird. <laughs> it's not that I think if I posted it, someone would go, oh, I'm going to light a candle. That I hope they fucking die from the flu. <laughs> I just don't believe that. <laughs> people are always like, don't post pictures of your altars or pictures of your kids because people can use it to do bad magic. I just don't believe a bunch of strangers are out there really dedicated to taking a picture of my kid and hurting them. <laughs> when people talk about the dead, 
they almost always will say something like, oh, but you have to be careful because there are some that, that are bad or will hurt you or will lie to you. And yeah, sure. There are people like that. And the dead are people, right? The analogy I always use is if you went to some place like Walmart right now, a place that would just have like a lot of people of all different kinds in it, right? The odds of there being a like a Ted Bundy in there are approximately zero because someone that evil is really, really rare. No, like it's just not happening with the frequency people imagine. And the odds of there being like a Florence Nightingale, truly good, benevolent person in there also equally probably zero because people don't, as an instinct, choose to be that good, really. Most people are just shades of gray and self-focused. I'm not saying selfish. I'm saying self-focused. We all have our own motivations and interests and desires and things we need to be doing. Everyone in that Walmart is likely degrees of similar to you. The dead are the same. If you summon up a room full of ghosts or go somewhere haunted, the odds of any of them being truly malicious are so small. So vastly small. And the odds of any of them being truly awesome are also very small. But when we you know, pull out the spirit board and try and talk to the dead. And one of them is like, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you. We take that as, as malicious when truly, I don't want to answer the goddamn phone either. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the dead just are, and they're probably just as ordinary as you. So maybe show up with Taco Bell or something, <laughs> kick on some Netflix. <laughs> You wrote a quote in your book about how the dead have generally nonchalant attitudes about being the subject of death magic, and I'm just imagining them all in a Walmart. I think that comes back around to, like, we think of the dead occupying, like, spooky dark places at nighttime, but they're everywhere all the time. We want to talk about this spooky house where somebody got killed one time ever, but we don't want to talk about the Walmart in my hometown that's literally sitting on top of a cemetery they bulldozed, like they bought it and bulldozed it. <laughs> It's just haunted all the time, even at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. But uh, we're not investigating those places. But just people have really weird ideas about working with the dead. Mm -hmm. Imagining coming up from like my grave tube station into a parking lot, like one day suddenly being like, what <laughs> <the> fuck? <laughs> Why am I in the frozen food aisle? What is it? Oh, Tokyo's. <laughs> Who are all these people? Oh my god. That would be, I mean, that must be so stressful for the first person buried in that cemetery. Probably, but also imagine how great it is. Like, it sounds like a base negative on the surface, right? But this was a really mm. old cemetery that was not cared for. Yeah. Oh. It was largely just a historical place. They relocated bodies, but also you can never relocate all the bodies in old cemeteries like that, so... Surely they're still there. That's the reason why in law in the United States, um, a body that no longer has flesh on it is not a body. It is not considered human remains anymore. And they do that so that it's easier to relocate um, old remains like that. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. You're no longer a corpse if you're all bonesy. You're not human remains anymore. Legally. Nevertheless, 
um, I think it would be amazing to have a Walmart built on top of your tube station because suddenly there's a lot of people there to talk to and see. Imagine if you get really good at manifesting, you could show up on the deodorant aisle and just say hey to a stranger and that their outfit looks great. And they go on with their day never knowing they spoke to a ghost. I often wonder if I've ever had an experience like that. I don't know. I think putting busy places in spots like that is really cool because the dead have a ton of people to see and hear and interact with. And it's just a really lively space. And I think that's really cool. They get to see families excitedly shopping for the perfect Christmas or birthday gift for their kids or... Maybe their own descendants show up there to buy groceries once in a while, or, you know, families picking out a turkey for their dinner. There's, I, I think that's really precious. They're, they're getting to interact with those really human parts of mundane life. And that brings up the perspective that you have too, that the dead do belong here. They don't, they're not people we need to like chase away. Right. There's always going to be a deceased person that's a problem for you in particular. Right. I'm sitting in my office adjacent to the cremated remains of several individuals. People send me remains. If you're listening and you somehow got saddled with the cremated remains of a person that was horrible to you in your life, mail them to me and I'll add them to my shelf of assholes and I'll take care of them. <laughs> That's what I do. I, I think necromancers are often elaborate babysitters. <laughs> There's always going to be someone that, that is uncomfortable for you personally to have in your life. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be evil or bad to other people, but maybe it's unhealthy for you to have your like narcissistic grandma harping at you every day. Mm -hmm. Those are ghosts that shouldn't be banished or exercised. Ghost laying is a technique that you can do. You can call on someone else to do where they're simply relocated. They're hey, you cannot live in my apartment anymore. We don't get along. We have very different ideas about hygiene. You need to find a new apartment. It's all good. We're cool. <laughs> this is this is a thing you can choose before going real hardcore into <laughs> exorcisms and stuff. That's kind of, that's way extra. <laughs> if you're comfortable answering about how many people have sent you cremated remains with circumstances like that? Oh gosh, look, I can just count on the shelf behind me. I'll see. There are like 14 right now. I have sent others elsewhere. Uh, what I often tell people is if they want to send them to me, I'll caretake them for a year. If they want them back at the end of that year, that like totally. And I will try to rehab that person in the meantime. Um, after that year, if I feel it's the right thing to do, I'll scatter them, but some just wind up staying. Like, I think it would be a bad idea to scatter them, or I feel like that person's inclined to change their mind later. Um, many just stay. So what do you mean by rehab them? So I spend a lot of time with the, <laughs> I have a, like a, I have a whole system here. This is going to get so wacky to explain, but. I have three layers of wards around my property on the ethereal, the physical, and the astral plane. So anything can come into the land, but nothing can leave unless it is benevolent and good intentioned, or at least neutrally intentioned. Um, nothing can go into my house proper unless it is neutrally intentioned. The 
space I use as an office is like a garden shed that I'm pretending is a real office. <laughs> I put up paneling, so it's it's real, you guys. <laughs> um, the quarantine space is where I keep the most problematic uh, spirits that wind up here. When there's an Eidolon on the property that is, um, say they were an abuser, uh, they were they were truly a problematic individual in life. Uh, content warning, of course, for anyone listening, but um, one of the individuals quarantined in my office space right now died in prison. Um, they were a rapist and they had, their remains were left to their victim. Oh my God. That is a thing that happens more than you'd think. Or maybe you're that person's last, you know, next of kin or their only kin and they were your abuser and they die and you wind up with their remains. So this particular individual is just a real asshole. So they are warded inside my office. They literally cannot leave this space until they just get better at being a person. So I spend most of my day while I'm working talking to them and playing therapist to, to this guy. <laughs> and they can do that forever or not. And uh, that, that's up to them if they, <laughs> if they want to learn to be better people. Have you had any that have moved on? Or gotten better? Absolutely. There have been a few success stories around here. Um, uh, I'll pick one that I've, I know the, the person involved, the living person involved would be fine with me telling the story, but um, one of my coven students' father passed away a couple years ago, and he was an actual awful person. And I love how they're just like, I'm going to show up beside you right now and listen, because you're talking about me. <laughs> This guy was a mess, a, just a mess. It's bad parents, really patriarchal ideas, evangelical Trump voter type, but also a biker and sold drugs and other just really messy bullshit. When he died, my poor coven mate was like, I don't even know how to feel about it, really. And uh, I offered them my services, my funeral services to go, uh, take care of their body the the deceased person wasn't gonna have a funeral or anything they were being direct cremated but i convinced them to to give a try to assisting in prepping their body um i told them i, I felt it would be good for them rather than just never going to see the body or, or interacting and they found that 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 was true that you know just seeing their their deceased parents in naked vulnerable form there on the slab and washing them like they were a little child and and talking to them was really important for them and i was glad they had that experience after they died however it seemed that they were inclined to pester some members of the family it was near the election and it was a whole bunch of uh showing up to insist they needed to vote for trump like they didn't get their last vote that sounds ridiculous but uh, truth is stranger wow. than fiction here we are mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so they got to be sort of permanently quarantined here in my office and we spent a lot of time talking and them kind of coming to terms with the parent that they had been and how their children truly perceived them and though they don't really leave the property they're no longer quarantined to my office and um, they kind of have a job here now so that's cool sort of playing a liaison to some of the other more disparate individuals hanging around. So 
So that's cool. Do you find it true that the dead like to have things to do? Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. It gets really boring doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's a very simple answer. We are human <laughs> beings and we like to have a thing to do. <laughs> a place that I used to live, um, one of my roommates accidentally summoned a spirit from a cemetery and then just didn't give them a task. And then I didn't know they did this. And that spirit, I was like, who is knocking stuff over and knocking on the walls in my room? And like, it was, it was like pencils were rolling off the table. And I found out the next day what happened. I was like, they showed up and were like, where's my task you said you had for me? <laughs> yeah, you got to kind of follow through. But on the equal hand, I've also interacted with spirits whose whole life was work and toil. And it's like, I don't want to do jack shit for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're cool. I'm going to hang out here. And that's fine, too. Everybody's different. And I think that's that's a big part of working with the dead that I think does get overlooked. Truly is just the humanity of it. They're not all going to act the same. They're not all going to need the same things because they're literal, actual goddamn humans. <laughs> take the time to you know get to know what they need and want and who they are yeah i've seen shirts before that say ghosts are people too yeah legit so i want to shift gears for a second because this is something that i noticed at the beginning of your book you you spoke about wicca and ultimately how you feel that necromancy is like a basic part of wicca in general Mm -hmm. but i wanted to bring this up because at least in the online community, because that's more of what I see, especially these days with, with COVID and everything, that people will kind of dogpile onto Wicca and brush categorize it as something that's like not to be taken seriously or like has all these like light beliefs or things like that. Can you speak about that for a second? Because you are a third degree gardenarian priestex. So I feel like you have actual credentials here. <laughs> Actual credential. <laughs> actual. I'm going to put that on my business card. <laughs> actual. I have actual credentials. No, I think it's kind of an interesting question. And before I say a word, I mean, I think it's really important to state that no matter what I say, there's someone out there who will disagree with me, right? Like ask a hundred gardenarians, get a hundred answers is the joke in our community. And I think, too, it's really important to recognize that so many founders of so many traditions, not just mine, were shades of shitty because we're talking about, you know, ought dickety too. (laughs) So that's worth noting, right? But I think the problem is that we're talking about a group of people that during a period of time were all parts of traditions like Freemasonry and OTO and prosecutionism and golden dawn and so on and so on right and they kind of band together like the ragtag group of weirdos they were and they make this tradition and that's how we got gardenarian wicca right but anytime you have a group of people there are always going to be people who can't be a part of that group either because let's slide to the left and compare this to tabletop games so you've got a tabletop game going right you're at max capacity you've got six people at the table it's too much already right and this new person comes along and they want to join the table and you're like, that, that would be too many and nobody's going to have any fun. And you know in the back of your mind that, that person like metagames and they're going to make everybody mad and it won't be a good time, right? They're your friend and they're a great player, but you just think it will throw the vibe off or 
So you have to say no. Well, what are they going to do? If they want to play, they're going to go start their own game or find a new table to play at. So inevitably, with the beginning of a group, you always have people who, for whatever reason, just aren't going to fit or there's not going to be space for them. Someone doesn't have room for another student or they think that person will throw off the vibe or whatever. And people go and start their own traditions. And that's how we wind up with Alexandria and Wicca. It's how we wound up with any number of other groups, right? So you then wind up with sort of a murky picture of what the original thing was at all. And then the broader that gets, the more confusing that gets. Some of the first books that we see out there about the topic were written by people who either A, were trying to write around the thing they love because it's initiatory, it's oath-bound. They can't say, we do this thing specifically. They have to say, we do a thing like this thing. It's similar to this, but this is not that, right? Or you have people who are eclectic, just making up their own thing and using similar words. And there's nothing wrong with those things, and those things are great, but they're definitely not that original thing. When we talk about Wicca, it means specifically initiatory craft, most comparable to Gardnerian and Alexandrian Wicca. But it does get used broadly for a whole bunch of things. So when people put Gardnerian Wicca on the same pile as, say, uh, something I read about online once was Unicorn Wicca, which is a kind of eclectic. It doesn't sound anything like the magic I know I'm doing. It doesn't sound anything like the rituals I was taught at all, like literally at all. But when people sort of look at the broad swath of it all and they only hear the one word, then it all starts to sound kind of silly and murky after a while, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it is important, I talk about this in my first book, it's really important to imagine Wicca kind of like we imagine Christianity. Now that came out away, but hear me out. When we think of Christianity, we don't believe all Christians think the same or even do the same. We recognize that there are denominations within Christianity. Under that umbrella, there are Baptists just the same as there are Catholics, just the same as there are snake handlers in the backwoods somewhere. They're all very, very different. We just use a similar word to define them. Just because people practicing tradcraft, initiatory craft, can't defend themselves and say, well, we're not doing what unicorn Wiccans are doing at all. We're doing this thing that's very different. We can't do that because we've sworn oaths of secrecy. <laughs> So people just continue to kind of have a perception that they're the same somehow. So I do think it's really useful to say somewhere in the back of your mind that there are denominations and they are wildly distinct. And I think that would be a really helpful framework for people to keep in their head. You're right. I do think people dogpile after a point and it's easy to do. There's a lot of heteronormative sort of binary nonsense in Wicca today but it's really revisionist history. It doesn't reflect what it was in the beginning. And we can debate that back and forth. Anybody that's read a bunch of books might have an argument with me. <laughs> it kind of really just depends about, it depends the people you're talking about and where they were in the time, right? But you could point to someone like myself who has 
kind of a strong ceremonial bent and a strong bent of death magic and is staunchly inclusive and staunchly non-binary. And I am here to say that that is a picture of what Gardnerian craft looks like. So that would be something folks could hold in the back of their mind if they're wondering what Wicca's really like. But it's also important to remember that within those trad crafts, individuals are autonomous. We have the autonomy to practice the way we see fit. So there'll be as many different flavors as there are people. So just like with the dead, it's really important to get to know a person and what they individually practice and believe before, you know, throwing shade. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I don't know if I really even answered your question. I feel like I just rambled. <laughs> I feel like you explained it in the way, like you said, like there, you can't like definitively give reasons why, because it's, again, it's an initiatory tradition that you're talking about, and which is also what makes it hard, like you said. Yeah, right. Like... I don't know. It's kind of like trying to describe anything you're not allowed to say. Like, well, I know a secret about so-and-so at work. <laughs> really? What is it? Well, I can't tell you, but you remember that other time that this thing happened? Maybe kind of like that, but not that at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. But what you don't know is you both thought of something really fucking different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just wildly different. I think, too, it, it didn't help that we had early founders who were on the wrong side of some of the uglier parts of our craft. Like, we talk about Raymond Buckland, for example, who is arguably why we have Tradcraft in the United States at all and was a really, really dedicated member of the Gardnerian community. But because covens were sort of... There is a broad practice of being women-led, not so much today, you see far less of that, whatever women even means, but when he and his wife divorced, he was sort of largely ousted because he couldn't run a coven on his own and she didn't care, and to not offend her, nobody was going to take him on as a high priest, so that sucks. And he really cared about the craft, so he went on to write books and make up new traditions like CX Wicca, which is the nuttiest thing I've ever read. If anyone wants to read something totally weird, CX? How do you spell that? S E A X. It's got a whole bunch of like totally wacky stuff in it. Like he uses the phrase "the great and mighty Lord Wotan" a couple times in there, which is <laughs> really, wow. really silly stuff. But he, he, did, he wanted to still be a part of the community in a way that was meaningful. So writing books like uh, the Big Blue Book, uh, Buckland's Book of Witchcraft, that kind of stuff, like it inspired generations of people to practice witchcraft, but was not a picture of Gardnerian craft at all. And of course it couldn't be. But when they see someone so known as a Gardnerian writing them, people start to believe that that's kind of what it is, even though that's not true. Mm. it's tough but just know we're out here and we're cool we're doing cool stuff some of us suck some of us don't <laughs> suck <laughs> as with every community of as people. with every community maybe we just don't be shitty to each other for something as simple as a word that we heard one time <laughs> it, it's funny too it's like if people hear the word wicca next to your name in any capacity it's like everything you do is wiccan somehow which is bizarre to me but <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm if I say that I'm a mom in some capacity, I really don't want everyone to assume that everything I do is centered around my children, right? That would suck, but 
we do the same thing when we're hearing someone say I'm a Wiccan or I'm a chaos magician or I'm whatever. I felt like I had to in the front of this book, just address that up front. Like, yes, I am a Gardnerian Wiccan. I'm also some other stuff. And when a person has a certain perspective, they can't help but it leak into parts of what they're writing. Yeah. I'm not Wicca washing the topic. I'm sort of being purposeful anytime I use that sort of structural framework, but it just is what it is. And I'm not going to be apologetic for it because people are allowed to be who they are. And I think that when an author feels an obligation to write around their faith practice to avoid some type of perception, that that's just as crappy as having to stay in the closet, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about, I know my way and I'm, I'm the downiest white person ever. So I'm sticking largely to uh, Greek necromancy as my foundation, even though I do dip my toes over into ancient Egyptian practices a bit, but the foundational structure of Wiccan ritual actually works pretty well here because they are both European in in practice. (laughs) So you can kind of play with that quite a bit in a really useful way that's easy for people to digest. And it gave me a lot of room to play. Okay, I imagine people would be really surprised to, to get a copy of this book and see that there are Sabbath rituals. There are necromancy mm-hmm. Sabbath rituals. <laughs> because I wanted people to see how necromancy can be a part of your everyday and a part of celebrations. How death is kind of woven through everything that we're doing. And if nothing else, and if people hate it, maybe it'll give them some interesting ideas and facts and details and know that I had fun writing them and talking about what I do at different celebrations throughout the year. Um, it's fun for me to know that Santa Claus was a necromancer, and now you know that too. So <laughs> I get to sort of incorporate that into my holidays, and I wanted other folks to have it. If they pick it up and they think it's dorky that there are Sabbath rituals in there, don't use them. That's cool. Do your own thing. Well, I'm really looking forward to when this comes out officially and I get an official copy because a lot of this is was really inspiring to me. There's a lot of pieces that I wrote down that, are, that were things that I'd thought about but hadn't really seen someone explain before. So again, thank you so much for, for sharing the early copy of the book with me just to look through. I am a big user of your ancestor oil. I use it before like all of my readings on candles because it's just, I notice a huge difference if I do and I don't use it. And I told you that on Twitter. I need to say it again. (laughs) I just made a new batch. It took me a year to make. I broke my my mother batch last year. It was so sad. (laughs) Oh no. What happened? I knocked it off a shelf like a big dummy. (laughs) (gasps) Oh I just was clumsy in its direction and that was my bad, but uh, I just finished. I'm literally bottling it today, a new batch. Wonderful. Well, if you're listening to this, you should look into getting some because it's incredible. Is your book available for pre-order yet? It is available for pre-order. The sad fact of the modern world we live in is it helps me the most if you pre-order it from somewhere like Amazon or a big seller because algorithms being what they are, it will make sure it turns up in Google searches. But if you don't want to buy it from a place like that, they don't charge you up front and you can always cancel them like right before they're going to ship. They're available for pre-order from Llewellyn directly. 
and I'll eventually have some on my website, but uh, authors have to buy their copies. Um, it's very expensive to buy a case, so I don't sell them until I have saved up and actually bought the box and have it in my hands. So keep an eye out for those. <laughs> well, I'll link some of the options for pre-order below in the description box as well. But do you also want to tell us about your store and the other things that you have going on? Oh my gosh. Well, like I've said before, many places I'm super bad at being a salesperson for myself, like really bad. But I do have a website at mortellus.com where I have a, a store where I have um, all kinds of responsibly gathered necromantic goods. Every little bit is really important to my family. So I'm always grateful for any amount of sales. And um, you can find me on Linktree or most social media at a crow in the dead. Um, but I always like to tell people if you're looking for um, a way to interact with your death gods that might be a little uh, offbeat, go to fundthefuneral.com. It's a website sort of like GoFundMe, but it's headed up by funeral homes. There's no percent, there's no uh, middleman in quotes. So if you pick a funeral to donate to, that money goes directly to their bill, 100% of it at the funeral home. And if they're overfunded, the money is given to the families. So that's a great little, little thing you can do if you're looking to make offerings for death. Wow, I didn't know about that. All right. Well, I will link all of that in the description box below. And if you are new to this podcast and no, don't know who I am, you can find all of my information at mothmana.com, Instagram at mothmanatero, and Twitter at manaalen. And Mortellus, thank you so much for, for coming back. And this was a really enjoyable conversation for me. I really, Again, I really enjoyed looking through the draft of your book and reading it, and I am excited for it to be published this year. Oh, when is the publication date? Oh my gosh, we didn't even <laughs> oh, say that. We're being, we're being so bad. Terrible. <laughs> Usually I'm better at that. It's September 8th, just in time for good spooky autumn season. And I, I wanted to say, if you, uh, if you send me an email after this, I would love to make myself a note and send your copy as a gift when it's out. So. Oh, thank you. Of course. It, and really, thank you for having me. Even if not for podcast things, I would have been happy to just to sit and chat. Mm -hmm.